As I was coming up the walk tonight, uh, somebody said, are you going to be funny tonight? <laughs> and I said, no. And then they laughed at me, <laughs> as if I was making a joke. I think you, you may know, but if you don't, uh, all of, uh, funny people want to be taken seriously. And serious people, you know, want to be funny. It's the way it is. Kind of says it all, doesn't it? There used to be an old saying that uh, if you wanted to get along with people, don't talk about religion or politics. So I'm going to be foolish tonight and talk about both. Not religion exactly, but uh, I won't tell you what to believe in or who to vote for or describe what God looks like or anything like that. Uh, I'm just going to offer you some reflections on politics and spirituality and how they might come together and diverge. And uh, it's appropriate because it is almost July 4th, Independence Day, which I'm sorry to say doesn't mean that we're all going to get enlightened on that day. It's a different kind of independence that we are celebrating, our relative freedoms, our political and social freedoms, which is no small matter, of course. And uh, it's a good time to reflect on how we live and um, how we conduct ourselves, how we organize our society. I want to uh, begin by going back to May 1st. Aside from being a pagan romp, May 1st is also known as the uh, day for the workers of the world. I went to my local bookstore this May 1st, and uh, it's Diesel Books on College Avenue in Oakland. And there was a sign on the door saying they were closed for May Day in honor of May Day, and there was a uh, notice posted on the door. And it was written by Gary Snyder. It was, it's a May Day toast for the workers of the world. I'd like to read you a couple paragraphs. Let's drink a toast to all those farmers, workers, artists, and intellectuals of the last 100 years who, without thought of fame or profit, not motivated by a thirst for power, whose motivations were compassionate and humanitarian, worked tirelessly in their dream of a worldwide socialist revolution. <laughs> Who believed and hoped that a new world was dawning and that their work would contribute to a society in which one class does not exploit another, where one ethnic group or one nation does not try to expand itself over another, and where men and women live freely as equals. What we have now is nervous, third world fundamentalism, and developed world global greed. The failure of socialism is the tragedy of the 20th century. And on this day, May Day at least, we should honor the memory of those who struggled for the dream of what socialism might have been. 
and begin a new way again. Gary Snyder, a Mayday toast for the workers of the world. I, I was so moved by that statement. Um, and I, I thought of the history that I've read about those people. Many of them were my people in Europe, beginning the Bunds, the labor unions, uh, who really had these very pure dreams of uh, a different way to organize society based on the teachings of Marx, the understanding of Marx and Lenin. And uh, I'll tell you another interesting story. In about 1992, I'm not sure exactly the date, but the Dalai Lama gave a talk at Zellerbach Hall in uh, Berkeley. And he was talking about his life, and he said that when he was a young man, still living in Lhasa, and he had been invited to go and meet with some of the top Chinese officials in Beijing. And he went there, and after being there for a week or so, he he started to wonder how these people could really call themselves socialists and communists, the way they talked, the way they acted, the way they lived. And then he paused and he said, you know, I think of myself as half Buddhist, half Marxist. The audience kind of gasped. I mean, this was right after the Soviet Union collapsed, and, and even to mention the words, were, they were dirty words, you know. They were the, the tyrannies that failed. And it's true, most of the socialist experiments of the 20th century failed miserably, and they became dic dictatorial regimes. Um, they failed because of many corrupt leaders and... Uh, people who thought the means justified the ends, and maybe also because humanity just wasn't evolved enough and ready for it. I also think that the socialist experiments failed because the spiritual was pulled out of them. Any sense of uh, ritual and uh, understanding our, our being, becoming humble in the face of, of the much wider mysteries. They were all, all that was pulled out of all the socialist experiments. In, in 1985, I interviewed uh, Allen Ginsberg for Inquiring Mind, and he had just gotten back from a trip to China. And this is what he said, quote, it's ironic that Chairman Mao tried to eliminate Buddhism and the Bodhisattva practices in China which is precisely what could have made their socialism work. Maybe the role of Westerners will be to reintroduce the essential active muscular form of meditation to China. <laughs> There's an idea. We'll start a, a Peace Corps of meditation teachers and send them, send them over. But what Ginsburg was talking about uh, was that Dharma practice and spiritual practice is part of any major change. Uh, as we used to say in the 60s, the personal is the political. 
and you can't separate one from the other. And uh, I think of Dharma practice as the evolution in the revolution. You know, you just take the R off. Because what we do in meditation, in ritual, in prayer, we understand our our own place in the scheme of things. We accept our place in the scheme of things. We become humble, which I think is really the definition of spirituality. Whenever I hear that word, I don't know, it's become a very muddy word. But to me it means a, a kind of humility in the face of the great forces that move beyond us and through us, and a humility in the face of the mystery of it all. None of us knowing really what's going on here, basically. But, um, and in Dharma practice, we also begin to uh, train our mind to be able to override some of the more instinct, uh, difficult and, and harmful instincts that we have as human beings, as mammals. You know, our, our desire, our hungers, our confusion, our anger. We really see, are able to see them as generic, as not, as not unique to us. And a kind of compassion can grow around it. We begin to develop a kind of compassion for ourselves and for everyone, realizing that we're all in this together. That grows out of our reflection, our meditation, the insights we gain into into our identity. So, in some beautiful ways, you know, the Dharma, the work on ourselves and the work in the world is really very similar. It doesn't mean, uh, of course, that uh, one substitutes for the other, but they come together in so many ways. A few uh, months ago, I, I sat a retreat here with Stokney Rinpoche, and he said that, uh, he said, you Westerners, you need to develop, uh, pay more attention to, to developing bodhicitta, universal compassion. He said, you know, you sit, um, you come to sit for yourselves, you know, to feel better. No blame, you know, it's very honorable to come to sit to want to escape your own suffering. That's not wrong. But when we sit only for ourselves, we're missing the point. You know, it's uh, as Wu Wei Wu, the, the great Chinese poet, said, uh, the reason that you're suffering is because 99% of everything you say and everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. <laughs> and... So the importance, uh, what, what Rinpoche was trying to say was the importance of dedicating merit, even if it's just wrote at the beginning, but to be, get into the habit of when you sit, of dedicating your efforts to the awakening of all, of realizing that we are collectively awakening. You know, it, it's a moment in time, and it's quite exciting to be part of it. We're collectively awakening. So, 
it's really great to get into that habit of arousing a sense of compassion for all of us struggling with this fragile human condition and uh, and wishing, making that wish that we all be free and at ease with this condition. <laughs> the Dalai Lama says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want yourself to be happy, practice compassion. The beauty, the beauty of the Dharma is that compassion really arises organically out of our practice, out of our insights. I mean, it happens, first of all, and this is a great uh, relief, it happens with ourselves, you know. We see our own crazy mind, we see our desire, our fragility, our, you know, our impossible condition, you know. We're humans that can imagine perfection and imagine our own death. Two great curses. I mean, if you can imagine perfection, you're never going to be good enough. And if you can imagine your own death, you're always going to be in some kind of anxiety. See, God didn't pick you up for special punishment. We're all in this together. And misery loves company. So, just the facts of life, folks. But when we begin to uh, see that in ourselves, our own humanity, and, and, and all of its difficulties, we, we can begin to open our hearts to ourselves a little. And, and the more and more we sit, the more we see how little we own this stuff, how much it's inherited, how much it is conditioning of the past. And we begin to know, feel it as archetypal, as universal, not take it so personally. And then the relief really begins to come but also we begin to recognize that everybody is like us. And our compassion begins to extend. I'll never forget the first meditation retreat I did in, in India, 1970. And towards the end of the retreat, the image of Richard Nixon came into my mind. And, you know, I had reviled this man and blamed him for, you know, the Vietnam War and all sorts of horrors. and. And uh, I saw this, this image of him with his face all scrunched up and his shoulders up here and how he was always so tense. I had this wave of sympathy or compassion for the pain and suffering that he was feeling. It was very strange, you know. Uh, that he was just acting out this role, you know, just playing out his karma in this drama that we're all in, going through history, you know. It was, a, it was quite a moment. I remember, um, well, just a couple months ago, I, I was teaching in Costa Rica with Ramdas, and we 
we finally decided to put George Bush's picture on the altar. <laughs> yes, we did. And we had him, of course, sitting right next to uh, a picture of Hanuman. And the resemblance, you know, was, was pronounced. Except George wasn't sort of tearing his heart open and showing Ram written there. But, uh, so, and somebody suggested that we put Rumsfeld on, but we never quite got there. We never quite uh, put him on the, on the altar. But there was that recognition, you know, that, that really we're all in this together. As, as the Tibetans say, the Tibetans have a great saying, they say, you drive all blames into one. Because really, when you start going back, I mean, whose fault is it? It's evolution's fault. It's, you know, you name it's fault. Blame it all on the Big Bang. Big Bang can take it. But it's that kind, of, um, that kind of consciousness is developed in our practice and in the insights we have about ourselves and about the world. You know, it's, it's a new kind of humanitarian consciousness. And what also arises is a kind of biological consciousness. I like to think of it as a, as a sense of a, a species self, a, a, our species identity, and our, our identity with all things that live our identity with all creation, for that matter. Uh, you know, you sit, and you, you sit with your breath, and you feel your heartbeat and the energies in your body. You realize how, you know, this, these are processes going on in many, many species of beings and different creatures, all breathing, all with this mysterious life, uh, this quality we call life in them, and that we're akin to all of them. We're akin to all of them, at least through DNA, you know, we share, uh, we all share DNA. Uh, uh, one thing, I, I love to talk about this because I think it just, it, it's the spiritual message of science. But just to reflect on it for a moment, that um, DNA is composed of four chemical compounds. Depending on how they're arranged in these strings of coded information, the DNA molecule will grow an ant, or a sequoia, or a human being, or a rose. It's all the same substance, depending on how it's arranged. It's like a miraculous substance. I've, I, I'm a little offended that it's called the DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. You know, it's, it's like too cold. So I am, I'm trying to proclaim a new acronym. Every time you hear or read the letters DNA, think divine natural abundance. Because that molecule creates all the many millions of different life forms there have ever been on this planet. And of course, as you know, uh, as you may know, we share nearly 100% of our DNA with the person sitting next to us. I mean, we're, I, we all have basically almost exactly the same DNA. Our, our IQs and personalities are just a thin layer of paint over this basic design of, of, of Homo sapien. And we share, of course, as you have heard many times, probably over 98% of our DNA with 
the great apes and over 90% with mice. You see, a lot of the instructions for building and maintaining you, most of them are instructions for building and maintaining a basic mammal. I mean, how much of our identity is that, and how much of our, do we ever pay attention to that part of our identity, of really being in this breathing body, uh, eating, self-mobile, biped, you know, bipedal, anyway, the whole, the whole nine yards of human, human existence, uh, or of mammalian existence. We share over 50%, no, I'm sorry, about 70% of our DNA with worms and over 50% of our DNA with yeast. Over 50%. <laughs> now, the spiritual lesson is really that, okay, if, you, if we consider ourselves divine, is not the slime also divine? <laughs> and if not, where do you draw the line? But, but, but that, that's a, a side, uh, a little side meander, but uh, it really is a powerful message that I think we're getting more and more through intellectually. And in Dharma practice, we can, we can really, uh, in some way, experience our commonality with other things that live. Feel the warmth of the body, you know, that's, and that's the sun's energy you know, being transferred into our life energy. That's really the fire element, the sun. We, we need the whole nine yards of creation, you know. The body's composed of the elements of earth. Bones made of calcium phosphate. It's literally the clay molded into your shape. Most of your body is liquid. That's, that's, and most of that liquid has the same chemical consistency as the oceans. You're literally carrying the oceans and the earth. You're, you're a piece of them. We're like earth sprouts that gained a lot of mobility. <laughs> Where else do you think the body came from? You know, it's just to begin to settle into that, uh, those other identities. See, the Buddha said, you know, True happiness comes from eliminating the false conceit of self or I. But that we don't necessarily do that by getting rid of anything, but by expanding the context of how we see ourselves, expanding our sense of identity to include the mammalian and the the living and and the whole universe, you know. Joanna Macy says, we need a new concept of self. Self as planet. Self as all being. Thich Nhat Hanh, great statement once. He said, once I was a cloud, once I was a rock. He said, that's not poetry. That's the, the, that's the history of life in the universe. So, Dharma practice can really lead us, spiritual life can really lead us to a new kind of humanistic consciousness and ecological consciousness. And a whole new way of, 
sort of experiencing ourselves in the scheme of things. And it's so important how we experience ourselves, how we see ourselves, because that determines how we'll feel about our lives, on the one hand, how comfortable we'll feel in this life, and also how we will treat each other and the environment, depending on how we see ourselves in the scheme of things. We'll see that, eventually see that our individual human life is first and foremost life, secondly human, only thirdly and narrowly individual. I wanted to read, uh, I mean, what I'm, what I'm pointing to here is how our Dharma practice really is the basis for an economic, political, social change. Because it is in developing these qualities and seeing ourselves the way we can learn to see ourselves and, and training our minds to be able to develop that mindfulness pause so that we don't act out of greed or hatred or delusion or out of the impulses that always lead us to suffering and others to suffering, that, that we actually perhaps can take evolution into our own hands in some way. Uh, Robert Thurman says that Dharma practice is an evolutionary sport, you know, One of the best ways I ever heard Dharma practice related to politics and activism, if you will, was from Gary Snyder in a book that was popular in the early 70s called Earth Household. All the hippies and new Dharma bums were studying this book. It was quite a serious, wonderful book. Uh, that he wrote when he was in Japan studying Zen. And one of the essays in the book is called Notes for Dharma Revolutionaries. He says, The mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self and void. We need both. They are both contained in the three gems of the Dharma path, wisdom, meditation, morality. Then he says, wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into the mind to see this for yourself over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in. And morality is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately toward the true community, the Sangha of all beings. Beautiful statement. So I can't uh, tell you who to vote for <laughs> or what to do. Uh, even in the political realm. I mean, that's up to each individual, as they used to say, from each according to their abilities. <laughs> we won't take this too far. But. 
<laughs> Why not? Yes. I, I was talking to Ram Dass, and, and you know, we, we came to the conclusion that if we were truly realized, all of us, you know, Dharma bums here in America, that's what we would become as some kind of socialists or communists. If we were truly evolved and truly uh, realized students of, of Dharma, and then we had to laugh at how far most of us are away from that. Um, so I can't tell you what to do, but I, I have some suggestions. Uh, things that I find it very important for me, especially in a time of very difficult uh, and seemingly ominous days uh, politically. Uh, I find that most of my sentiments and ideals are uh, totally unrepresented in my country and in the government of my country and, and I, I'm, I'm very uh, concerned about it and uh, I want it to change. So uh, the main thing I think for all of us if, if we are going to express ourselves in the world is to remember that this, the practice is essential and that it's really part of any, any change that must, you know, that, that, that will come about. Um, there's one way in particular, and I think that that is, when I am sitting regularly and deep in practice, I really feel a lot less acquisitive. There's a, there's a lot less that I have to consume in order to feel a sense of satisfaction or, or aliveness. Uh, and there's not, I, I, I feel much more satisfied with the moment. I mean, that's what really practice is about, is getting to that, that place of enough. Enough. This is, this is so full. This moment is so full. There's, there's aliveness. There's consciousness. There's Anyway, there's, there's so much to be appreciative of, appreciative of. So sometimes I think of sitting as also as, a, as like a sit-down strike, you know. I'm sitting here, and I'm not going to go and be part of the rush and the craziness. And, uh, and you claim your ter this, this silence and this ease for yourself every day and touch it deeply as... Snyder would say over and over again, and that you bring that out becomes part of the place you're living from. <laughs> so I try to exercise my awe muscle every day. That's the, the muscle that is kind of, ah, wow, you know. <laughs> and we, we live in, in, a, in such a, a world of such wonderful, miraculous things, and... Uh, Sometimes we can see them with ordinary mind. We take them so for granted that we don't see, uh, you know, just how wild and crazy and wild an age it is. Boy. And all the wisdom that we have available to us and all the information. And, you know, it can drive you crazy, but it's also, it's also wondrous. It helps me to stay optimistic also to, um, to do some reflection, not just sitting, but 
to do some reflection. And it's good to stay optimistic in these times. You know the difference between an optimist and a pessimist. The optimist says, this is the best of all possible worlds. And the pessimist says, I know. <laughs> but what really, what really helps me to stay optimistic is to really develop a sense of, of this biological consciousness and to really reflect occasionally on deep time evolutionary time, if you will, and realize that we are very young species. We really are. I mean, uh, the genus Homo is only maybe a couple million years old. Modern Homo sapiens, 100,000 the most. We just got these big brains, and we don't know how to use them very well yet. But we're working on it. When you think that 10,000 years ago we just invented agriculture and started living in cities, 10,000 years in biological time is an absolute nothing. It's a blink of a blink of an eye. There's been a complete revolution in the life of this planet in the last 10,000 years. If you look at it, it's, it's completely astounding. Uh, you know, that 10,000 years ago we invented agriculture and now we can fly to, off the planet, see to the edge of the universe, see inside of matter. We know all about all the human cultures that have ever lived. We know all about physics and chemistry and biology and, and you know, the Buddha and Lao Tzu and Socrates were 2,500 years ago. And, and Einstein and... Uh, Darwin and Freud and Jung are our contemporaries. It's, it's a whole new world where we're just beginning to wake up to understand ourselves in the scheme of things. If we see ourselves in that deep time perspective, we, we can't help but be both hopeful and kind of excited about living in this time, you know, where we are awakening in a different way. We're, we're truly becoming we're truly living up to the name Homo sapiens sapiens or twice knowing humans. You know, that's what mindfulness is, is a kind of twice knowing, is a kind of knowing what you're doing, knowing that you're knowing. Uh, either, either it means that or it means you have to hear something at least twice before you get it. That's had to get that joke in. But, um, Yes, but it's truly, uh, it truly, it truly is useful to reflect on that, e even to reflect on historical matters, uh, and realize, you know, it is always something. Times are always rough. That it's it's what samsara is all about, and. This is not unique. This is, I mean, it's maybe only unique in the amount of freedom and abundance we live in. That's unique. 
But the difficulties that we face in our lives and dealing with traffic and prices and population and ecological stuff, I mean, just, just think, it's only been two, three generations, I'm sorry, decades, two or three decades that we've known how our actions are affecting the environment. Doesn't that bring it into, into a di different perspective? I didn't hear the word ecology until 1970. That was when it, it started to be, to be understood. 1970, the first UN conference on the environment. We're just waking up to that. So, to keep a, a perspective, here's, here's something I'd like to read to you. All parts of earth are trampled, full of trade, overspread, fields rebuff the forests, herds fight off the beasts, the very sands are sown, rocks cultivated, swamps drained, today's towns outnumber yesterday's houses, islands are not even lonely anymore, nor cliffs intimidating, everywhere are residences, peoples, government's life, and this above all proves humans' drastic growth. We so clog the universe it can barely support us. As our needs increase, we struggle with each other for them, and nature fails us. That was written by Terulian, 150 A.D., <laughs> Roman historian. Life has survived many upheavals, many uh, enormous upheavals, life and humans, you know, comet collisions and, and plagues and Attila the Hun, Henry Kissinger, all sorts of, <laughs> all sorts of disasters. So to keep that to keep that sense of the larger contexts in which we live and to keep the practice going so that we can begin to integrate that to the to we so we integrate that experience of ourselves as not just this monad going through the world the psyche going through the world this head on a you know floating around uh, the skin encapsulated ego as alan watts called it I want to offer another little hit of uh, optimism for for my my own ideals and uh, my generation, some of my generation's ideals, the generation, the, the, what you might call the counterculture of my generation. And I want to read to you from my book, a little piece here towards the end. Although opposition to the policies of the Bush administration may seem relatively weak, there is a growing movement for change in America and the world, a movement that encompasses the metaphysical, ecological, and spiritual dimensions of life, as well as the political, a movement that is somewhat invisible to the wider public and so new and varied that it doesn't yet have a name. Some deep current of change has begun flowing out of the spiritual adventures 
and identity struggles of recent generations. Of course, we didn't create the conditions or the questions of this new era. We got caught in them. The ground shifted. The old gods departed. The economic and political utopias crumbled. And the traditional answers were washed away. We didn't leave home. Home left us. But I am convinced that what we created out of the resulting confusion is significant. There are tribes everywhere loosely held together by a common thread of belief that we need to develop some new ways of thinking about ourselves, conducting our lives, eating, moving, exchanging goods, praying, and dying. And we are everywhere in Jewish and Catholic reform movements, reading enneagrams and tarot cards, going to sweat lodges and pagan rituals, doing breathwork practices almost as ancient as the breath itself. We are converts to Sufism or a Hindu school of Tantra, or we may just light incense and try to be quiet for a while every day. We're also joining systems theory think tanks and becoming members of the ruckus society, trying to figure out how to curtail global corporate power, or doing work to change the national diet and agricultural practices, or becoming involved in business and trying to create an alternative economy. We might go to Bioneers conferences or attend the Council of All Beings or belong to the Epic of Evolution Society, which is advocating the evolution story as a guiding myth for our time. I'm a member. We are out there, seekers, true believers, deep ecologists, neo-romantics, and naive mystics, perpetual idealists, not quite sure how we got here or even what we're doing or what significance it has but doing our best to follow our visions and make a contribution. It is far too early to even guess how all these experiments and ideas and behaviors will affect the course of history. This new stew has just been put on the stove and it seems unlikely that we will stop global capitalism in its tracks or transform the ethos of war and competition at least not in a single generation. We might remember that it took a couple of centuries for the Christians to gain influence in the Roman Empire. History has a momentum of its own and it takes time for a paradigm to shift even a little. We need to be patient and rejoice in the process of our work and our lives. D.H. Lawrence may have captured the situation several decades ago when he wrote, the whole great form of our era will have to go and nothing will really send it down but the new shoots of life springing up and slowly bursting the foundations." End quote. Perhaps the best thing we can do is cultivate and water those new shoots, take cuttings and spread them around, and perhaps someday they will be strong enough to do the work. Finally, just a word about interconnection. And it's very common in Buddhist circles and rituals, uh, especially to invoke the ancestors, to invoke the lineages, to invoke all those who developed these practices over the centuries and used them and uh, developed them, refined them, 
that we're sitting on many, many shoulders here. And that indeed it's a collective effort to awaken as a, as a species, as, as a community, as a Sangha. And just as Gary Snyder saw fit to honor those people who had this dream of a, of a different society, a society maybe where there was more sharing and cooperation and less competition and less greed, that we can also honor uh, on this coming holiday at some point our ancestors in social and political freedom these very visionary people who really developed a way of life and documents that would guide this way of life and brilliant, brilliant men and women, you know, who, who saw that maybe a society could live together and, and govern itself and uh, see to the welfare of all. Here's a quote. It's neither wealth nor splendor that leads to happiness. It is tranquility and service to others. That's not His Holiness. It's Thomas Jefferson. Who also said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all are created equal, and are endowed by their Creator, with the inalienable rights of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So we honor all those ancestors today, not today, but this week, this weekend. Ancestors in political freedom and in absolute freedom, and we honor ourselves for being part of it, part of this movement. We dedicate ourselves to awaken for the sake of all and to generate loving-kindness and compassion for the sake of all. Let me just end with a uh, poem by Walt Whitman who was sort of the bard of our founding mothers and fathers. Well, Walt Whitman, from the preface to the 1855 edition of Leaves of Grass. This is what you should do. Love the earth and the sun and the animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone who asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. <laughs> Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Have patience and indulgence toward people. Re-examine all you've been told in school or church or any book. Dismiss what insults your very soul. And then your flesh shall become a great poem. May it be so.
So um, I guess we have time maybe for a couple of questions. If anybody has questions or anything they want to contribute briefly. Anybody burning with Anybody feel the soapbox pushing up from below? Yes. Um, it is not splendor nor something else. Yeah, that that will lead to happiness, but but uh, tranquility and service to others. Um, I wanted to let you all know. I do have another uh, another announcement. Anybody else who uh, chomping at the bit here? No. Okay, one more. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. I I don't know if you know this statistic. This this is my favorite statistic. You know there are a hundred trillion cells in your body. The life has gone from a single celled being to a being with a hundred trillion cells. That's us. All the a hundred trillion cells working together. Inside each cell, which is like a millionth the size of a pinhead, inside each cell is a little few molecules of seawater, and floating in that is a two-yard-long strand of DNA. It's very, it's so narrow, it's only a couple molecules wide, and it's wound millions of times around itself, but if stretched out, it would be two yards. So, two yards of DNA in each of 100 trillion cells means that if your DNA <laughs> was stretched out end to end, it would go around the planet several million times. Are we great or what? No, it's a complete knockout statistics. That, and, you know, the fact that, there, that each of those cells contains, you know, volumes and volumes worth of information on how to build and maintain a human being. It's like all the lessons that life has ever learned and incorporated to its three and a half billion year history is in each of your cells. You're a walking library of evolution of, of uh, this mystery. Yes? There's another interesting mystery that's just uh, come to, uh, to our knowledge which is that the Y chromosome, which means that you're male, has 78 genes. And in order that it be preserved down through generations, it had to learn to read itself frontwards and backwards. Yeah, and that means... <laughs> it leaves the implications to everybody's thought. <laughs> It, in order for the Y chromosome to be passed on, it, it had to have a, 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 a replicate, a, 
a copy of itself. So we needed, not, we needed RNA. We needed to develop something that would copy this information and... It's also, I believe the term is an anagram. It reads the same, it's reads the same way going this way. Palindrome. Palindrome. Okay. Anyway, thank you for that. Males are palindromes. Males are palindromes, yeah. That's why we, that's why males ask so many questions. It's the Y, it's the Y chromosome. Okay. That's why we never have to ask for directions. <laughs> yes, somebody was stretching very, very energetically. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I thought that I did that, did I? Did... <laughs> I mean, I can't suggest what, what people should do, you know? I mean, everybody has to do what they, you know, I could, I could tell you who I'm interested in as a, as a candidate, or I could tell you, you know, what, I, I, what I've been working on, which is, uh, partly is, is giving, I, I'm trying to give to more uh, things that come in the mail, I know how how bitter uh, a time many uh, charitable organizations and, and nonprofits are having, you know, Amnesty International and all those, they're really struggling. And uh, so I'm trying to see if I can, you know, and it, it feels great. It feels absolutely great. It, it is, it truly makes me happy when I, when I do that. Uh, so it's working. <laughs> I only I only give for selfish reasons, you know. I mean, it, it all works. Um, thank you all for coming. It's been a delight to be with you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate